0: Future City is made possible by Janine and Josh Fiddler, and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.
1: Hi, I'm Wes Moore, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the inaugural episode of a new show here on WYPR, one we're calling Future City. We'll be talking today with an exciting lineup of guests about an idea that could transform Baltimore. But first, let me share a few words with you about who I am and what I hope to accomplish while I'm on the air. I'm an education entrepreneur. I'm an author. I'm a military combat veteran. But most importantly, I'm a Baltimore native. I believe deeply in the promise of this city and in the hope of this city, but I also know that the city does not have the market cornered on good ideas. And that's where this program comes in future city what we're going to do here is look at what's going on right in other cities that are maybe not so different from this one each month we'll lift up one of those examples and set it down in baltimore to see whether and how it might do some good for us right here so today let's turn our attention to a city 400 miles east cincinnati ohio and to an idea that's transformed that city it's an idea that's gaining momentum here, too, an idea that's growing schools into community learning centers, where a lot more happens than just teaching. Joining me in studio is Marketplace education reporter Amy Scott, who made a documentary film called Euler. The film follows a year in the life of a Cincinnati school that's trying to turn around a struggling neighborhood. Welcome, Amy. Great to have you on. It's
2: great to be here. Thanks.
1: And so so tell me a bit about the film and how you went about finding this school to follow for the year.
2: So I cover education for Marketplace, the public radio show, and I was interested in doing some stories about education and poverty. There's a huge debate going on in our society about whether education is an excuse for low achievement in schools or whether it's something that can't be ignored and in order to help children growing up in poverty succeed, we have to address poverty itself. So I had heard about um, what Cincinnati was doing with uh, many of its schools, adding social and health services inside the school building to try to address some of the, the symptoms of poverty. Um, and I eventually came upon Euler School and was just really struck by the story of not only the school, but this neighborhood where Euler is situated.
1: But one thing we see, too, is this wasn't an accident, right? This was a very deliberate decision by the citizens of Cincinnati to move forward with this. Can you talk a bit about what they had to do and how ha- and, and the votes that had to happen in order for this to even be a reality?
2: Right. So there was a state Supreme Court case uh, that worked its way through the courts for many years in Ohio about the condition of the schools. And it was actually about the physical condition of the school buildings. Many of them were crumbling in terrible shape. And as a result of the ruling in that case, Cincinnati got an influx of about a billion dollars to rebuild its schools. But at that time, middle-class families were leaving the city schools. Um, the schools were really struggling. Poverty was going up. Uh, there was a large uh, racial and income achievement gap. And so city leaders said, okay, we're we're not just going to rebuild schools and have them sit empty. We've got to do something different. And you're going to be talking with one of the, the women who – came up with uh, or helped develop the idea of what to do with the schools, which was to turn them into these community learning centers with input from the community. They would add services um, and supports and uh, enrichment programs to address the specific needs of the neighborhoods of where these schools are.
1: And I think one thing we see is that uh, leadership matters in all this. And I want to introduce our, our listeners to one of the people who really epitomizes that, and that's the principal over at Euler, and uh, a gentleman named Craig Hockenberry, who's you know running around a neighborhood where you see a lot of heroin, a lot of shootings, uh, shootings chasing down kids who are cutting class, going to their homes. Uh, let's take a moment and just listen to him describing the scene.
3: I could walk you outside the door, not even 15 steps away, and I could probably get just about any drug that I want. I could walk you another 15 feet down, and there are our parents, that are prostituting and are hooked on heroin and crack cocaine.
0: That's
1: a clip there from the documentary film Euler. By Marketplace reporter Amy Scott. So, Amy, back in the 90s, you did a really nice job of of not just showing where the school and the community is now, but where was it before? What was it like back in the 90s when, uh, you know, before they started implementing all these ideas of community schools?
2: So, Euler was originally a K through six school and then became a K through eight school. Um, And after eighth grade, most kids dropped out. Which is really hard to imagine, but this neighborhood is, the culture is traditionally urban Appalachian. And that means um, after World War II, a lot of families migrated from coal mining towns in West Virginia and Kentucky um, and eastern Ohio to the cities. And Lower Price Hill, this neighborhood, became kind of an enclave for this mostly white Appalachian culture. It's changed a lot over the years, um, but kids, when they would graduate from Euler, would go to large inner-city schools and not feel very welcome, or they they felt like they were in a different world uh, from the neighborhood they'd grown up in. Many of them would just drop out. There's a line in the film by a parent who would drop her kids off, and when she got home, she'd get a call, your kids aren't at school. I just dropped them off. <laughs> uh, this happened a lot, and so when Cincinnati decided to create community learning centers uh, as part of the community engagement process. Leaders went to Lower Price Hill and said, we're going to you know, get this new school and you're going to have all these services. What do you want? And they said, we want a high school because our kids aren't graduating. And if we have a high school, we can keep them here and get them across the finish line.
1: You know, what's, and what's really interesting, it, it changed the entire role of a leader inside that community, right? It changed the role, it changed the entire definition of what a teacher had to be, what a principal had to be. There's a, there's a great scene, and I wanna play a clip from it, uh, where Principal Hockenberry is talking about how he sees his role. Uh, why don't we go ahead and run that clip?
3: A little girl coming in, third grader, covered in dirt with one flip-flop yesterday. The other one busted on the way in. This was um, January. I could call her mom and say, you know, where's her shoes? Be mad and call 241Kids and say this is neglect. Or I could just find a way to get this girl's shoe. <laughs> I want to do something that's, you know, much, much different than probably a lot of principals. I want, you know, the boards to come down off the houses. I want less crime and people from outside our community coming in and selling drugs. I wanna start working on the neighborhood, the streets.
1: That was Principal Craig Hockenberry from the documentary film, Euler, made by my guest today, Amy Scott. Now, now Amy, I, I don't know many principals who wouldn't give everything for, for, for their students, but, um, but what we see here with Principal Hockenberry is, we see exactly what that means. Uh, When it means to give everything, to understand the situation and the environments that students are coming from and how exactly to support them and their families. Understanding that, how were they able to take a principal Hockenberry and make dozens of them and put them all over? Like, how do you scale that level of understanding and leadership inside of a school?
2: Well, that's one of the things I wanted to understand uh, working on this, the radio series that um, preceded the documentary as well as the film itself is, does it take that kind of charismatic leader to make this model work? Because as you see in the documentary, his job is jeopardized. And you wonder, how can this school go on uh, without someone like that? Um, And a lot of educators that have seen this movie tell me, that is just not sustainable. Um, You'll see him chasing kids down the street, you know, who are truant. You see him at the basketball game, you know, his blood pressure goes through the roof because he's so invested in these kids and, and what happens. To them, And I don't know that that's scalable. It's certainly hard to have a good personal life if you are living and breathing your school like that. Um, And I think, you know, it took a toll on his family. But I think what is important is having the buy-in of the community. Uh, If you're going to create a school, a neighborhood school that really works not just for the kids, but for the families, you need a leader who's trusted, uh, someone who motivates the staff. And uh, I don't know if that is taught in principal school, or if some of it is just in in his DNA.
1: He has an inherent understanding of what it's going to take for the entire community to move forward, and and the results kind of speak for themselves. I mean, you talk about how it was a district that before uh, no one really graduated. This was not a graduation or especially not a college growing culture that existed there. How's the school and how's the community doing now?
2: Well. Um, I don't want to give away too much about the film's ending, but uh, I will say that the school is graduating 40 to 50 kids every year. And again, these are kids who 10 years ago may not have finished high school. Mm -hmm. So that's real progress. Um, They've continued to struggle on test scores standardized testing is undergoing a a major overhaul in our country and and rethinking of how we do it, how we hold schools accountable for achievement. But that's a place where Euler has still lagged, as have many schools in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. But they've continued to add services. If I can just tell you what the school looks like, if you walk in, there is a vision clinic that looks like a lens crafters. Basically, there's a dentist uh, with a couple of chairs, dental chairs, where kids are seen not only from Euler, but throughout the district. Uh, there is a clothing closet where kids can go shopping for free clothes because many of them don't have winter coats or um, you know, clean clothes to wear or shoes that fit. There is tutoring, a very large mentoring program. Um, and they've only just expanded the services since I was there.
1: If you're just joining us, you're tuned in to Future City. I'm Wes Moore. Here in the studio, I'm with Marketplace reporter Amy Scott. We've been looking at this whole concept of community schools and how this one example of a community school has really come to life in a very tough neighborhood of Cincinnati. Now, Amy, you followed a senior whose name is Raven Gribbons. And Raven came from a family with a lot of addiction and other struggles, and she's trying to be the first one in her family to go to college. Let's listen to her and play a clip.
4: I've lived in Lower Price Hill my whole life. It'd been rough, but it'd been okay too. Everybody used to tell me, you're not going to make it through high school. You're going to have a baby by 16. So I'm glad to prove all them wrong.
1: That was then high school senior Raven Gribbons from the documentary, Euler. Now, uh, Amy, help me picture what Euler as a community school has done for a student like Raven. What has she gotten from that school that a student like Raven would not have been able to get from a traditional school?
2: Well, Raven um, had been at Euler since kindergarten, so she'd spent her whole life there, really. And um, the services, the community school model, didn't begin until 2006. So she didn't get the full array of, of services. Um, but one of the things that I think had a really big impact on Raven was that every senior was assigned a mentor, someone from the community, to help them not only get through their last year of high school, but start thinking about what's next, their college plans. And this was someone, I mean, her mentor is shown a bit in the film. Her name is Holly Gundrum. She takes Raven out to lunch to practice having a business lunch and what it's like to meet with another adult kind of face to face and make something happen, whether a business deal or just, you know, a a connection that'll help you in life. Um, She bought her presents. She would give her books to read and she would kind of get on her case a bit about uh, things like her social media presence and just try to kind of teach her how to get along in the world in a way that Raven hadn't really learned from other adults in her life. Um, Her mom was largely absent, and her father had been a recovering addict, and she hadn't lived with him for much of her childhood, although she moved back in with him her last year. Um, So I think that mentoring aspect really had a big impact on her. Um, Raven is a, a little bit stubborn, and so I wouldn't say that she took advantage of some of the other Uh, services. Um, She wanted to do things on her own, but uh, she also, for example, got her eyes checked. She hadn't um, realized that she was having migraine headaches caused by vision problems. And you see another woman, a young woman in the film named Crystal, who um, also is able to take advantage of some of those health services that maybe she wouldn't have received otherwise.
1: You talk about the impact and the importance of, of mentoring. Is that something that was mandated when they went in with this idea of community school? Is that something that that school and particular did. How, how do they go about finding the people and implementing that if that made such a big difference in the life of Raven?
2: Euler had actually had a very long-term uh, tutoring program with individuals from the community. I think they had over 400 mentors who volunteered to come and work with kids on academics. Well. A lot of people, when they come to Euler... They want to get involved. It's, there's just something about the school. People want to help these children and, and want to do what they can. And so I think sometimes groups will present ideas uh, to the school. Sometimes the school will say, we have a need. Can you help us fill it? And one thing I should say is the model is designed to be self sustaining. So the the school district doesn't pay for these services. Uh, for example, the health clinic bills Medicaid um, or private insurance in the in the event that a kid has that kind of insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, same with the vision clinic. Nonprofits who do things like counseling services, they tap their own budgets and they, they raise their own money. So it doesn't come out of the city school's budget, which is something I think um, that explains partly why it's been so successful. Mm-hmm. It's this public Private partnership.
1: This is uh, Marketplace reporter Amy Scott, and we've been talking about her fantastic documentary film, Euler, the story of a Cincinnati school that's part of a growing national movement to convert schools into community resource hubs. Amy, thank you so much for this interview, and thanks for being here.
2: Thank you very much. It was my pleasure.
1: You're listening to Future City here on WYPR. I'm Wes Moore. After the break, a closer look at Cincinnati schools beyond and since the film – And later this hour, we turn the lens back on Baltimore. What do we stand to learn from Cincinnati and schools like Euler? Stay with us. Welcome back to Future City, I'm Wes Moore. In our last segment, we got a glimpse of life in a Cincinnati school called Euler with documentary filmmaker, Amy Scott. Euler had been a failing school. Then it along with the rest of Cincinnati bought into a new way of thinking about education called either community learning center models or community schools. Our next guest was instrumental in that change. Joining me now by phone is Darlene Kmine. Executive Director of Cincinnati's Community Learning Center Institute. Darlene, it is great to have you on. Thanks so much.
5: Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: So before we get into the bigger picture, I'd like to stay with Euler for just one more minute. Sure. Uh, you know, you've known that school long before those kind of wraparound services uh, supported kids like Raven and other students who we were introduced to. Uh, can you walk us through the process of how it became a community school? Specifically, you know, what exactly had to happen for that school to transform?
5: The uh, transformation of Euler really was part of uh, an an overall transformation of the Cincinnati Public School District. We know that um, from crisis comes opportunity, and we had a lot of crisis. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The uh, school district had lost a tremendous enrollment from 1970. We had 90,000 students in Cincinnati Public By 1999, we had 45,000 students, so we lost half of our students, and along with that, about 200,000 people from the city of Cincinnati. From 1970 to 1999, we went from 500,000 to about 300,000. Along with that crisis, um, we had a directive um, as a result of a Supreme Court decision in the mid-'90s from the Ohio Supreme Court that found that the condition of our physical facilities in Ohio, and specifically um, Cincinnati was among the worst, uh, that our physical school buildings were in such bad shape as to deny uh, the constitutional right to an adequate public education. So we really had to, we were faced with an urgency. We had to rebuild our schools with some small contribution of funding from the state. The rest had to come from a bond levy. A bond levy from a population that had so disconnected from the schools um, that they were no longer sending their, their students, uh, many families chose other alternatives, or simply moved away. And against that backdrop, we were going to have to go out to the taxpayers and ask them for um, about $750 million to build new schools. So we had to rethink our entire approach So the approach was, we're going back to the neighborhood, each neighborhood, each school and its surrounding community, the neighbors, the parents, the churches, the businesses, the residents, um, neighborhood by neighborhood, and really figure out what would it take to bring you back, what would it take for you to send your children to this school, and what would it take for for us to restore this neighborhood and to have the school as the center of this neighborhood once again. And that was the story for Euler as well as every other school in cincinnati public over about a ten year period is just really going back to the neighborhood to the customers and finding out what would it take to bring you back?
1: But see, and that's a really important point, right? Where this wasn't something that was imposed upon people. You know, the, the citizens voted that this was going to be a priority. And so now that you're looking at it, you know, a, a decade plus uh, that you that you had this process in place of converting all these schools into community learning centers. Uh, how is it going for for the schools inside of Cincinnati now? And how are you measuring your successes?
5: Well, it is um, going wonderfully. Uh, we have the, the, the first measure of success, if you consider what our starting point was, um, with a declining enrollment, I will tell you that when we started the facility master plan uh, in about 2000, 2001, the projection was is that by 2010, we would have 28,000 students. Um, we have consistently um, been rising in enrollment year after year, and we have surpassed uh, 35, 36,000. We have added schools that we um, didn't have originally in the plan because we have so much population. People are moving back to the city. People are coming back from um, the suburbs uh, to choose um, to live in the the city, to live in urban districts, uh, in an urban district, and to send their children to Cincinnati public schools across the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, That is the greatest success. On top of that, of course, the um, more traditional measure of what makes a great school, obviously a great education, everything that that we do really rolls up into that that bottom line for academic outcomes. And we have, since we started, the community learning centers really got them going. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is our seventh year as the highest-performing urban district in the state of Ohio. and We've got eight large urban centers. That sort of says it in a nutshell.
1: But what things have been the most frustrating? What are the things that you need to do next? What are the things that that have been frustratingly slow in order to see that level change?
5: Well, I think that um, community engagement, democracy in general, is a messy business. (laughs) It takes a long time. Uh, Euler, to go back to Euler, when I started there in 2002, uh, with the great promise to, um, you know, this is uh, we have an opportunity to have a new school, and the school will be built um, outside of this particular site in a, in a newer place, a better location, air conditioning, and all that sort of thing. And the, the co- response of the community was absolutely not. We've been on this site for 1930, and we're not moving. And moreover, we've been in elementary school on this site since 1930, and we want a high school, and we've been saying that we want a high school we have a, a culture and a tradition in this neighborhood that we don't leave the neighborhood we're not going to high school outside of the neighborhood and they had the highest um, dropout rate of any school in our district and uh... you know one of the highest in the country eighty-five percent of the children who graduated from Euler in the eighth grade never made it to a tenth grade seat. so almost a hundred percent dropout rate from that school So while they were supposed to be getting a new building and we were going to talk about what kind of services and partnerships do you want, what they really wanted to to work on was getting a high school. And so that became the approach, That most important thing that we needed to do to transform that school into a community learning center, a, a genuine center of community. So what... Was projected to take about two and a half years. Took us about seven years. <laughs> wow. So that's—I I won't say it's as much a fr- frustration as it is a great test of patience, <laughs> um, and making sure that that you um, have a, a clear vision and mission in mind, and that you you keep the community uh, really mobilized and and together uh, against a lot of frustration. I think the the bigger frustration that we're faced with now. and every community school, I think, faces this, is that I I almost think that the beginning part of of bringing together the partnerships that might be healthcare and after-school programs and all kinds of of things that more immediately impact the conditions of learning, at the end of the day, for many of us, it is still about poverty. It is still about the lack of decent housing. It is still about economic insecurity. Uh, It is still about not being prepared uh, in terms of health and development for kindergarten so that you're starting behind and so that's our next uh, real uh, work is making sure that as we, we really uh, look at if there's to be a level playing field if we are to be successful ultimately um, we have to go beyond the schoolhouse and have to really look at how does the school become a catalyst for um, economic revitalization for housing revitalization and that's that's the next frontier
1: Best way you can support a family is make sure they come up in a strong, supportive home. Exactly. Well, that's Darlene K. Mine of Cincinnati's Community Learning Center Institute. This is Future City here on WYPR, and I'm Wes Moore. After the break, we'll bring these ideas back home to Baltimore and talk with Julia Baez, Chief Strategy Officer of the Family League of Baltimore. Darlene is going to stay with us on the line as well, and we'll look at how Cincinnati's experience might help to inform or even transform things here in Baltimore. Stay with us. You're listening to Future City, and I'm your host, Wes Moore. We're talking today about community schools, an educational model that's had success in Cincinnati and elsewhere, and is gaining ground here in Baltimore. So far this hour, we've talked with Marketplace reporter, Amy Scott, who followed one school for one year to see what's been working in a school called Euler. We've also talked with Darlene Kamon of the Community Learning Center Institute, which led the charge in Cincinnati. Darlene is still on the phone with us now, but we're also pleased to be joined by Julia Baez, Chief Strategy Officer of the Family League of Baltimore. And Julia has been a key player in rolling out the idea here. Julia, it is great to have you on the program. Thank you. So we've heard a lot about what's going on in Cincinnati and how they really went all in, in terms of making community schools really omnipresent Mm -hmm. throughout the city. Uh, You know, here in Baltimore, we haven't had the same level of community push and, and same municipal push. Where are we in terms of community school adoption here in Baltimore?
4: In Baltimore, we have about 60 community schools today. In about 2011 12, we had about 18 community schools in the city. So we've seen huge momentum and growth over the past four years, as well as increased investment both. By um, the city of Baltimore as well as the governor's office and now we have other partners at the table interested in sort of seeing this strategy scale. Um, last year Baltimore won the National Award from the Coalition for Community Schools for the work in Baltimore as well as three schools in Baltimore City who each won individual awards for their work around community schools. So we've seen great progress. We just had a report come out from the Baltimore Education Research Consortium that shows that we're actually beginning to see the impact of the strategy. So, we're seeing reductions in chronic absenteeism, reductions in suspension, increased attendance. We're seeing lower student mobility in critical years in that middle and high school year. Kids are staying in their school um, when traditionally we've seen a lot of churn in a lot of the larger high schools and middle schools. So, it's been really exciting to see the progress so far here in Baltimore.
1: So, in the past, Five years, four to five years, you've seen a three x, three times increase in schools that are on board. We're watching performance uh, enhance, and, and the schools are performing pretty well. Uh, but how exactly are you funded? Is this consistent money every single year, or do you have to fight for money every year to grow?
4: You know, that's one of the issues of the model in Baltimore is how do we sustain the resources? Um, you know. Uh, Community schools are fighting issues of inequity that have been around for many years in our city, and they're not issues that are going to be changed overnight. It's really about how do we create access and opportunity where it hasn't existed for so long in many of our communities and neighborhoods, and so... To have to battle year after year to sustain those resources is both draining on the community and the school itself because this is really about how do we as a city like Cincinnati did rally around our communities and our schools together and see this as a long-term vision and strategy for our city.
1: And you've known Darlene for a while. In fact, you went to Euler and you toured. Yes. Uh, And so what were some of the biggest takeaways from your tour when you visited?
4: You know, the first trip we took out to Cincinnati was really focused on the work they had done, specifically around the facilities. As you know, Baltimore is going through a process now to renovate and rebuild school buildings. And it was a huge opportunity for us to think not just how do we build a school, but how do we build community while we build buildings? And so what we went out and saw was that, you know, communities were engaged there at the table not just at the table but decision makers in the process um, one of the things I remember hearing was from a school board member in Cincinnati and she said we weren't afraid of empowered parents they welcomed the tension they welcomed the community into the room and they heard them it wasn't just talk they were there to really drive the process and so you know I think that really helped to inform the work in Baltimore now for all All of the schools that are going through the renovation and rebuild in Baltimore, they're also going through a community school planning process at the same time. So we're really trying to think about how do we braid this work together in a similar way to what Cincinnati did.
1: Darlene, I want to bring you back into the conversation as well on this. There are a lot of similarities between Cincinnati and Baltimore, but there are also some real differences. And I know when we look at the documentary of, of, of Euler, one thing that we see about the students and the families that are there, a lot of it is Appalachian population, a lot of them are poor white families. Mm-hmm. How then, you know, and I want to throw out to Darlene and then also back to you, Julie, about how we put that in the place of Baltimore, where that isn't necessarily the case mm-hmm. of a lot of our students. You know, first I'll throw it to you, Darlene. How did you go about implementing this in communities that are very different from one another?
5: When you do this neighborhood by neighborhood, that really comes right through. That particular neighborhood is telling you exactly what it is that they want, um, what kind of partners, what kind of services, and in fact, who they want to partner with. So part of our infrastructure is based on um, school neighborhood level choice. And so each neighborhood develops its vision. What is it going to take for them to have their kids return to that school or go to that school as as a first choice? And what do they want to see as the center of their neighborhood. If you really gear yourself towards planning on that kind of a level, it really makes the whole difference, and it doesn't matter whether what the socioeconomic is, um, what the culture is, what the, all of the, the history of that particular neighborhood will be reflected in, in the development of that unique vision. But you have to be prepared, you know, for a system that can allow for choice for so many different neighborhoods that are seeking to be able to partner. There have to to be a lot of choices.
1: So, And and so, Julia, when you think about the the 50, 60 schools that we have here in Baltimore right now, are there any trends that you've noticed about the schools, neighborhoods, backgrounds, anything that you've seen uh, that you think are are worth pulling from to understand how we're going to grow from here?
4: We've prioritized in the sort of rollout so far, schools that are higher Title I, higher English language learners, are in communities where they don't have a lot of access and opportunity to food, to health care, to mental health services, to recreation, to opportunities that exist in some of our wealthier neighborhoods and communities, both in Baltimore and across the state. But what we've seen, you know, regardless of sort of where the community school is, it's really About how do you change the relationship between the school and the community, and the community and the school? And so, everyone's going to set their own vision, but the work is the same: is how do we bring in the right resources and partnerships? How do we build on the assets that are already here? Ultimately, leading towards creating successful young people and successful communities. And so, really thinking about that two-tier, multi-generational approach. What Southeast Baltimore needs in terms of, you know, English classes for parents may be very different than housing stability in west baltimore but it's still about making sure that those resources are available for students and families in that school
1: you're tuned to future city here on wypr i'm wes moore in the studio this hour we have two guests who have been instrumental in bringing the community schools model to cincinnati and baltimore respectively darlene Kmine and julia baez but now let's go to the phones I'd like to hear from some interested Baltimore stakeholders about these questions. And the first one that I'd like to uh, bring on board is Job Grotsky, who is the principal of Mount Royal Elementary and Middle School, which is not yet a community school. Job, thanks for joining us. How are you doing?
6: I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me.
1: It's our pleasure. What's on your mind?
6: I had a question as a relatively new principal um, here in Baltimore City. um, And as a school just starting to explore the community schools model, um, for the panelists, um, uh, what kind of uh advice would you give to a school or a principal who would be interested in beginning the process?
4: One of the things that um, we started in Baltimore about three years ago was a community school planning process. What we do in that planning phase is we find a community partner that's a right fit um, for your school and we go through a process of doing a needs assessment. So what are the actual needs for your students, your families, and your community and how can those needs drive a really strategic plan around who are the right partners and what are the right resources? And I think that's sort of the switch between a school that's really interested in being a community school and has a lot of partners, to actually being strategic about thinking who are the right partners, um, who should I say no to and who should I say yes. I think a lot of times schools always are saying, "Give me, give me, give me. I'll take anything. My kids need everything." When you move to a community school model, it's like you know that might be good, but you know what? We'll wait a few until we engage that partner because that's not the right fit for us right now. And it's making sure that the right kids are receiving the right services and the right families are getting what they need. We have schools in Baltimore that have 10 mental health providers and they're only serving 10 percent of the student population. The community school model is really thinking about how do we spread those resources equitably across the school and across the community and neighborhood.
1: Joe, if you don't mind me asking, uh, you know, as a principal here in Baltimore, what about the community schools model is, is most intriguing
6: to you? Um, I think uh, it was just hit on the nail. We have all of these uh, potential partners that we come across that want to help the city schools. And, of course, we're in the mindset of, yes, please come help us, come help us. But I think um, the intriguing part is the organization of it all. And from what I understand, I think partnering the needs of our school instead of just blanketly inviting everyone to come in and help out with this. Um, Having a really strong um, strategic plan to organize everything, I think, is a lot more effective. Um, I guess, you know, the old saying, uh, quality over quantity. Um, Because as new principals, someone comes knocking at your door and wants to help you out, of course, we let them in Um, with open arms. I think um, having a strategic approach um, and, again, being relatively new, I don't know if I'm quite at the point of uh, being able to say no to people who want to help us out. But um, I think um, having just that focused action plan that we can all um, move in the same direction is very appealing.
1: Joe Grotsky, the uh, Mount Royal School principal, uh, both elementary and middle. We appreciate you calling. Thanks so much.
6: Thank you very much, too.
1: You're tuned in to Future City here on WYPR. I'm Wes Moore, and today we're talking with leaders in both Cincinnati and Baltimore about community schools, innovative educational options, and figuring out what Baltimore can potentially learn from Cincinnati as we're growing these options out. And We're taking calls. Uh, right now I'd like to take a call, and uh, joining us by phone is Mr. Larry Simmons. He was the community schools coordinator at Baltimore's Westside Elementary near Penn North, which is designated as a community school. Larry, thanks for joining us.
7: Good afternoon
1: and so you have a question
7: uh, basically i just wanted to know um west side is one of the many schools that is a part of the community school uh initiative here in the city but also it's a school that actually this was our last school year we are merging with another community school uh John e. howard elementary which is in the reservoir hill community and i just would like to know how is the city kind of looking at the schools that are merging that are, have been community schools and that have been providing so many services for a particular community, how is the city supporting the transition of not only schools and the buildings, but also the transition of combining communities and merging families
1: together Larry, it's a, it's a great question, and and uh, and Julie, I'll I'll throw it out to you first. I mean, how are we thinking about these merging of schools? Because this is not simply just saying, okay, well, this student will attend this school. This is a complete rethink on on how this process works. So, not an easy process at all.
4: You know we've been partnering with Baltimore City Schools to try and really push this conversation around the merger of schools you know there's issues around transportation school climate to Larry's point you know if what we we've all talked all through this hour around the resources and partnerships being hyper local to that neighborhood and community well what happens when you move that school to another community Um, how do you rethink and how do you still make sure that folks that are still in that original community still have access to the resources I don't think we figured it out in Baltimore um, that was one of the things that was sort of a lesson learned for us um, from Cincinnati and I'd love to hear how Darlene addressed that um, because the merger of schools as well as swing space so we have issues when schools are being built we're moving schools into temporary buildings while their new school is being built well what happens in the temporary building how do we make sure kids still have opportunities there so I I can't say that we have a great answer other than really just trying to make sure that we're listening to the community in the process and we're trying to leverage as many resources as we can to provide the supports that are needed during the transition time.
1: Darlene, did you have thoughts on that as well?
5: Yes. Uh, well, we, we also face that and, uh, and also among our schools, many of our schools are magnet schools, so they are citywide enrollment um, anyway. They are not necessarily uh bringing kids in from the the neighborhood in which it's located. And so um, our our approach just kind of organically but it 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 seems to be working very well is that there are certain set of partners that are more um, attuned to the uh children in the school, uh services that support uh the the students that are enrolled no matter where they're coming from, maybe health services or uh, some of the after school programming. Um, but then at the end of the day, the school is still located in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so maintaining the relationships, um, continuing to cultivate those relationships, and find ways for the community, for the neighborhood in which the school is located, and families, regardless of where their children go to school, to feel that that school is the center of its neighborhood and that there are reasons for them. To come and and uh, and be part of that school building
1: well I, and I think that's it's important because you really do underscore and highlight the idea of of community and and Larry, actually, I want to throw it back to you. Uh, if I told you right now that listen, every school in Baltimore City in the next ten years is going to be a community school, what's your gut reaction?
7: I would be extremely excited um considering the, the state that our city is in, um I think that the community school initiative is one of the best things that's ever happened for Baltimore City. It's definitely best one of the best things that happened has happened to communities like Penn North, um, where uh the schoolhouse is pretty much the one place for all of the services that not only children can receive, but also adults and um also people who don't even have children in the building right. have been able to benefit from some of the services that are provided at West
1: Side. Larry Simmons, the community schools coordinator at Baltimore's West Side Elementary near Penn North. Thank you so much for joining us, Larry. Thanks a lot. You're listening to Future City here on WYPR. This is Wes Moore and today's episode we are talking community schools with leaders from both Cincinnati and Baltimore. And joining us now on the phone uh, is Marty Blank, the director of the National Coalition for Community Schools and also the president of the Institute for Educational Leadership. Marty, it's great having you on.
0: It's my pleasure, Wes. And you have a question? Yeah, you know, there are two things that I think are important as we think about our community schools work, and that is what is happening in terms of the roles of the school in moving broader community development and turning around the neighborhoods in which the schools are located. I know that some of those things I've heard about in Baltimore and Cincinnati, and I think that's an important uh, question for us to think about, Because we know that schools are so embedded in their neighborhoods, particularly in the places where our most vulnerable kids are living.
4: You know, one of the things that we're doing in Baltimore is there's a group that's been convened by um, the Association of Baltimore Area Grantmakers focusing on school-centered neighborhood investment. And the focus is really to think about you know the opportunity we have in Baltimore now around the renovation and rebuilding of schools, and how can that spur other opportunities in neighborhoods? If we don't have a grocery store, if we don't have affordable housing, if we have two hundred vacant homes, you know, on the path that kids have to walk to get to school, how can we connect with um, the housing department and the planning department, who's leading um, the Inspire movement here in Baltimore, to really? Um, sort of build on the momentum of the work that's happening and and because the work of community schools is embedded in the work of this 21st century schools initiative there's an opportunity for community partners to really be at the table both in and out of the school to think about the, those opportunities um, the other thing is because the model in Baltimore includes community-based organizations as the lead agencies to partner with schools we also have a lot of community development corporations that are playing the role um, of the community school partner. And so they're already bringing to the table sort of that in and out-of-school mindset around the opportunities in terms of the community school model um, we have a school in southeast Baltimore who partners with southeast CDC and they're working to see how they can get teachers to buy homes in the community that they're teaching in so there's a lot of opportunity to build off of the work of community schools um, and I know that in Cincinnati they're also thinking about sort of that housing development piece in addition to, to their model as well
5: So with regard to the point that Marty has made, um, I think the easiest uh, uh, way to be able to uh, kind of encapsulate this is that the success of the school and the success of the neighborhood are inextricably linked. You cannot have a strong school if you don't have a strong neighborhood, and you certainly um, can't have a great neighborhood if you don't have uh, an anchor uh, of a good, strong school. I think one of the best Examples when we were doing our planning in one of our neighborhoods that had a very strong Catholic school and a very, very weak uh, neighborhood school before we started the community engagement process, and people had so disconnected from that school, and the neighborhood was in turn deteriorating, and people were leaving and moving away and We had uh, the priest of the Catholic church um, uh, every time he he came to a community meeting every time he spoke publicly. He put on his collar just to make the point, and he would say, "A a strong neighborhood um, has to have a strong neighborhood public school, and if there's a strong public school, there'll be a strong neighborhood. Then there'll be a strong church, and then there'll be a strong parochial school. So we're all in this together." And um, Mm -hmm. when we were starting that school, we were in swing space, and and we were you know needed to be able to have a space that was closer to where people actually lived. Um, the baptist church gave us their building for free for two and a half years because they said we need to bring people back to this neighborhood and if there's a good public school that we will once again fill our pews so the idea basically is that to have strong neighborhoods to have strong cities there has to be um, a, a, a connection between the school and housing and transportation and the pipeline to the workforce and health and recreation and all of the quality of life measures and for too long, we've just been in this with school sort of on the side and then everything else, you know, they're big developments or big housing initiatives, big workforce initiatives, and they don't connect to, to the very base. So I think Marty's point is, is absolutely critical.
1: So, so Marty, I'd like to, like to follow up on that and throw a question to you as well. We heard recently from from Secretary Clinton that in a, in a Clinton administration that uh, the community schools and the growth of community schools is going to be an educational priority. Uh, we also heard that. Heard the same exact thing from uh, at the time Senator Obama uh, when he when he was running for president in oh eight. What are the biggest challenges to making this where it's not just individual pockets and in individual cities, but where we're having real push nationwide throughout these type of uh, these type of initiatives?
0: Well, I think it's important to note, uh, West, as I get started in responding that the work in baltimore and in cincinnati is indeed systemic in those communities correct you know darlene is now working in it uh, f- has a policy in cincinnati for all schools and similarly moving forward in baltimore so we've we at the coalition have been very intentional about advocating for systems of community schools not just for individual schools but rather working with stakeholders uh, from intermediary groups like the Family League and the Community, community, centers, community Learning Centers Institute, school districts, United Way's are very active. Uh, higher education institutions, local government, and others. So, so what we need for the federal government to do is to create the incentives uh, at the national level that will help to bring people together in the way that is essential to make community schools work and to invest resources in a way that will support the community school we have a very small federal program at the moment which belies the fact that we have a huge amount of work going on around the country so the answer is not just money but it's a much clearer message uh... from the uh... federal government i think the president obama did a good job of helping us move forward but we need an even stronger voice tying school and community together so the next secretary of education and the next president can be a much stronger voice in that regard you know jim comer the famous uh, psychiatrist from yale often has often said the word is development it's not academics it's development and academic development is a part of a broader development of young people so i hope the federal government will be sending that message as we go forward
1: Marty Blank, the director of the National Coalition for Community Schools and also the president of the Institute for Educational Leadership. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: My pleasure, Wes.
1: That's going to wrap things up for our conversation here today on Future City. I want to thank all of our guests. Amy Scott from the public radio show Marketplace, Darlene K-Mine of Cincinnati's Community Learning Center Institute, Julia Baez of the Family League of Baltimore, and all of our callers. Thanks, guys, for being on.
4: Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much, and good luck to Baltimore. Thank you, Darlene.
1: (laughs) So we're here at the end of the show, and I just wanted to share a few personal thoughts. You know, the best way to support a child is by making sure that child comes up in a strong, supportive home. And the best way to support that home is by making sure that that home exists in a strong, supportive community. We know that community schools have challenges and cannot fix everything overnight, and there is a danger of doing it too fast. But there's also a danger of doing nothing at all. It took a state Supreme Court ruling to acknowledge a crisis and inequality that existed in Cincinnati, and it shouldn't take that for our city to understand that we have similar problems. It's not a question of whether change needs to happen. It's a question of will, and will we have the humility to look outside of our boundaries for answers, and the courage to move forward and actually implement them. I'm looking forward to sharing this time with you in the months ahead and having some more conversations with folks doing great work in other cities and their counterparts here in Baltimore. We're going to look at how they are implementing change in a wide variety of issues such as juvenile justice, housing, and veterans reintegration in cities as diverse as St. Louis and Tampa and Boston. Our mission is to find good ideas wherever they are and look at how they might improve our own future city. Future City is produced by Mary Wiltenberg and Aaron Hankin. And thanks to Whitney Cunningham, Kristen Matsinikos, and Melanie Hardy. For 881 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore. I'll see you soon.
0: Funding for Future City is provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.